Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. Today is a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Rachel Reed, a midwife, teacher, mentor, speaker, and author of Why Induction Matters and Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. She's also a researcher who challenges the medical paradigm to reform maternity care on women's terms. She has practiced midwifery in a range of models and settings in various countries and attended births in hospitals, birth centers, and homes. Dr. Reed advocates for women's rights in maternity care and is committed to the promotion of physiological birth and woman-centered care. And we talk about all of the above in today's episode, including other important topics like birth culture and practice, midwifery as a practice and evidence-based practice, interventions, and just so much more. This episode is a lot to take in and everything Dr. Reed brings to the table is worth considering, whether you have birthed, about to birth, or work in the birth space. What is your story? What kind of led you here? Because you're very well known for pushing against current birth culture, current birth norms. And how did you get here? Well, I got here, I guess, through practice. So becoming a midwife um, and seeing all the things that were happening that didn't make any sense. And then you've kind of got a choice, haven't you? Either just do the thing because everybody does the thing and that's the thing to do or you question it and decide you're not going to do the thing which is kind of what basically the story of my life (laughs) is doing the thing that I feel (laughs) is right not necessarily what everybody else thinks is right so that's what got me interested I wasn't interested in research when I qualified I just wanted to practice midwifery but I headed back into research because I could see that The story was that practice is based on research evidence. Well, it's not. So when I realised, well, it's actually not, because when I look at the research, that's not what it's saying, and we're doing this thing that contradicts the research. Um, That's how I ended up into research, because in order to argue that, in order to support what I was doing, I couldn't just say I'm doing the thing because, you know, it's all woo and I like it. I had to be able to say, well, actually, I'm doing this because there's a Cochrane review to support it. That's the language that you have to speak in you know, a medical system, is you have to speak research language. If you want to do something that's not aligned with culture, you have to support it with something. So that's how I ended up heading into research. So how then has it been received, your, your research, your findings, and that it's sort of going against current culture 
Well, my uh, what I focused on in research, I'm not a numbers person. Um, and I kind of think numbers aren't particularly helpful when we're looking at something like maternity services where we're actually dealing with healthy, well women. So it's not like you tr- you're assessing whether a treatment for cancer works better than another treatment for cancer, where you need numbers. You need to know, you know, percentage-wise what works best. But what we've done, because mm. the maternity services have evolved out of medicine, we've got medical research. So it's big randomised controlled trials that say generally in a general population this is a thing that works best and there is a place for that there absolutely is a place for that but when you're one of the problems with research in maternity services is that it's come about after birth moved into hospital settings so all of the research is about what happens when we do this thing to a group of women who are birthing in hospital where routine intervention is the norm and physiological birth is rare so what we know is we can reduce hemorrhage by doing a medical intervention in a birth that's in a medical setting what we don't know is what happens though if that wasn't in a medical setting what happens if we weren't doing all those other interventions we don't know that because there's not enough women to get the numbers to do that and there's no funding for the research So my area of research in terms of my speciality has always been qualitative research, which is the other piece of the puzzle, which is how are women experiencing this? Why are care providers doing the things they do? How are women perceiving the things that care providers do? So, you know, that's in terms of the research world, qualitative research is not really given a lot of respect because it's soft, you know, it's it's, it's supposed to be subjective, ignoring the fact that so is... Mm numbers quantitative research is is totally subjective and i wrote an entire blog post on that you know the topic you choose how you go about it who's the experimental group you know in in maternity research the experimental group is often the group that's not getting something so with for example cord clamping in research about when you should clamp the umbilical cord the experimental group is the group that aren't getting their umbilical cord clamped immediately so it's just it's like it's kind of flipped in maternity services so what I wanted to do was add in the voice of of women and really look at physiological birth because if we don't understand physiology then we can't understand how interventions alter it and we can't understand what pathology really looks like and what a complication is so I think that's the and that's what I've been working on them at the moment. My first online course is just purely childbirth physiology because it's lost. We don't know what physiological childbirth is because as care providers, we don't see it. And, you know, in the media, it's certainly not there. And there's not enough of it happening for the research to get there. And the textbooks are still based on observing women who were birthing in hospital with lots of interventions. And they just keep re regurgitating and reworking the same diagrams the same content about stages of labor about cervixes opening and you know centimeters it just keeps get put into textbooks despite the fact that there's evidence saying that's not how it works so that's where i've started is that absolute fundamental grounding of what is physiology because if we don't understand that we can't do the rest yeah and i think you sort of talk about this in your book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, and you go through her story. Her story slash history, for those who haven't read her book, shapes the way 
we think and practice today in maternity services in particular. Can you maybe provide some context for those who maybe haven't read your book on the things that have happened in our past in maternity care or with women and how that's impacted how we practice today? I think the the primary thing is the move of birth from a collective culture of women. So it would it was women supporting women in the community, secluded away. You know, birth has always happened secluded away from the rest of community, whether that's in a part of the home or in a birth centre or wherever. So it was community-based and it was this kind of collective knowledge that was held by women. And within that, you had the midwives, who were often the wise women of the community, so the healers, who would kind of be a bit like the obstetricians and know when things were deviating from physiology and how to manage that with what they had at the time, which would have been various techniques and, you know, herbs, etc. So long story short, that that changed because, you know, physicians popped up and then there was competition between wise women healers and physicians. And of course, you, you know who won. Um, the witch burnings got rid of a lot mm-hmm. of that female knowledge in terms of healing and, and medical care. And the physicians rose and they connected in with the church in order to to really eliminate that knowledge base. Um, mm. So then hospital birth came about, and that was actually a long time after that. That's fairly recently, you know, the last couple of hundred years that women have been birthing in hospital. Mm. And that was kind of almost the final, the final shift that took birth from that collective culture of women in the community into systems that were built from medicine so midwifery came under nursing so that then it could be controlled by medicine so that was a whole lot of legal fiddling about to get that done so midwives then were having to be nurses first and nurses work you know basically administer doctor's orders so that was the culture now for midwives in the system and midwives were then working for the system not directly for the woman and community so just change the practice and then so this is all before evidence-based practice this is well before research you know research in maternity care didn't really come about until the 90s the 1990s well after birth had moved in so what happened yeah so what happened was all of these ideas about bodies as machines that can be managed more effectively through medicine and intervention had already happened so you know had timelines for labor that were just you know made up not based on anything we had enemas shaves routine vaginal examinations, twilight sleep where women were just literally knocked out and babies removed with instruments and then a lot of practices developed around that. So for example this idea that the cervix has to be open before women push comes about because women were having their babies pulled out with forceps, all of them because they were unconscious and you can't put forceps onto a cervix so you needed to make sure there was no cervix there to pull the baby out with forceps. And yet that's still in practice now. So if we kind of feed, if we get the little thread of a practice and follow it back, it comes out of a time when birth was, you know, really medically managed. You know, compared to today, it was even more so. And that's where practice in the system arose from. And then research came about. You know, we had evidence-based practice really pick up in the 1990s. And obstetrics was, you know, renowned for being the least evidence-based speciality in medicine. He even won an award for that. (laughs) 
in this in the seventies. So which is why in the nineteen nineties, which is when I was training, we were really trying to bring about evidence based practice into maternity care. And what that looked like was doing research to prove it was all right not to do the thing that was brought in before research. So routine episiotomies, there had to be research done to prove it's all right not to routinely cut women while they're birthing before that became the norm. It ha- you had to do research to prove it was all right not to do enemas. It, you know, it's completely flipped. So we're doing research to prove it's all right not to do a thing that was brought in without research. And we're still doing that. It sort of blows my mind in a way because would this happen in any other sort of medical setting? I want to say medical setting because at the moment that's how birth is viewed. It is very medical. So you would think that that wouldn't happen. And yet it's just so backwards. And this is why I think it's important that we pay attention to the past and not forget about it and how it's impacted the way that we think and practice today for sure you talk about physiological birth I thought I knew what that was until obviously I read more about it and I had I had an idea of what that was but I actually didn't know what true physiological birth looked like or was and I know that you you've even mentioned in the past um I think it was on your podcast actually and you mentioned midwives don't actually know what true physiological birth looks like in today's hospital environment, um, which also just totally blows my mind. Um, so can you explain what physiological birth is and why our system would, I guess, why our system should be promoting physiological birth over what we currently have? Hmm. Well, <laughs> physiological birth is, and, and this is why I avoid the term natural birth, because nature includes pathology. You know, viruses and cancer are natural. Complications in childbirth, hemorrhaging is natural. So if we're going to say natural birth, then that encompasses all of the things that we're actually trying to avoid with interventions. You know, your interventions are great when you need them to, to prevent nature from taking its course, because sometimes nature's course is death and dying and not what we want. So I don't use the term natural birth. And the term normal birth is often used kind of in the research space um, and in maternity services. I don't use that either because I, you know, it's not normal to have a physiological birth. Like the norm is intervention. Most women in Australia will have intervention during lots of it during the labour and birth. And we, you know, it's only about twenty percent of women actually get a baby out of their vagina without drugs to start labour, drugs to speed labour up, or instruments to remove the baby from them, or surgery. That's that's the stats just for that and that doesn't include women who are having epidurals or who are having episiotomies or who or other interventions so norm is not a helpful word because you know the norm is intervention and you know women having interventions are normal it's not abnormal to have a cesarean section you know it doesn't make your birth abnormal and it doesn't make you abnormal so it's a really loaded term because you know the flip side is the abnormal so the term that I use is physiology, and physiology um, basically means an, an organism, you know, in this case a human body, functioning as it's meant to in a healthy way. So it's a healthy, well-functioning of a body. So physiological birth is just childbirth without interventions, complications or pathology, where the body's functioning as it's meant to function healthily to birth the baby. 
That's kind of in a nutshell, physiological birth. And you're going to ask me why you don't see it? Well, yes. <laughs> but I was also going to ask, do you believe that every woman is capable of a true physiological birth? Um, well, we're all, we're all individuals and we all have individual bodies. And no, because, you know, some of us don't have physiological menstrual cycles. We have pathological menstrual cycles and that's natural. You know, part of being a human is that some things naturally work well and other things don't. It's a, I think we need to stop attaching them. Um, you know, there's not this. A physiological birth is great and the research supports it as optimal for mothers and babies for short-term and long-term outcomes. But not all women want that and not all women can have that. And that's fine. It's not the be-all and end-all. You know, you haven't ruined your life and your baby's life if you don't have a physiological birth. Um, I just feel like yeah. in the medical services, we need to understand what it is so that the women who do want it, we can support them to have that as best as possible. I know some women won't. You know, if we look at the World Health Organization, they, you know, the long standing stat is between 10 and 15 percent of women and babies really do require medical intervention otherwise they wouldn't survive and if we look way back into history you know maternal death and the death of babies was common so pathology is part of nature mm. so not all women mm. unfortunately will experience physiology they'll experience pathology or complications but the vast majority of women in the vast majority of births absolutely can have a physiological experience mm. i really appreciate that um that viewpoint our bodies are unique and i mean we even see that in pregnancy i i had hyperemesis in my pregnancy and a friend of mine was like she wasn't even pregnant you know and so even in that it's so so different um so i appreciate that and i also think at the same time on on the other end of the spectrum uh, having that understanding in a hospital setting of physiological birth for birth workers and midwives. So now I wanted to talk about your book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, because you talk about rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, and then you talk about rights, R-I-T-E-S. <laughs> Can you distinguish the two <laughs> and explain sort of what you mean by childbirth as a rite of passage? Yes, so rights, R-I-G-H-T, is the, is the legal rights, the ethical rights, the human rights, that's kind of your law, that's your rights for, for example, somebody to not do something to your body without consent. That's rights, you know, your, your right to access adequate maternity care and medical support if and when you need it. That's your right. Whereas rights, R-I-T-E-S, is a word that... Um, so we go back to the origins of word. It's like a collection of rituals. That's what it means. That word is collect like a, you know the multiple of rituals. So when I talk about childbirth as a rite of passage, it's really referring to that anthropological term, um, which is rites of passage, which are a collection of actions. Because I think when we talk about rituals, people start to think, oh, it's all kind of woo and and kind of have these visions of people doing strange things around candles and that kind of thing, right? But a ritual <laughs> is a, a regular and repetitive action or word. Um, and there are lots of rituals in our culture, but we don't see them because they're in our culture. 
and there are lots of rites of passage which are a collection of actions and words around a passage of a person from one part of their life to another. So for example graduation in Australia is a rite of passage out of school. It is heavily ritualized mm. if you look at what, what you know, kids do. You know they do the clapping out ceremony where everybody kind of gets together and claps them and gives them a kick as well as they're going out. There's kids in the school, they all get into cars, this is what they do locally, drive to the beach, rip all their clothes off and jump in the sea. This is a real cleansing of their school years, isn't it? And then they all go to surfers and get pissed and have sex and things. That's their rite of yeah. passage. <laughs> That's a really clear rite of passage from, you know, school child to, you know, out into the world. And we can see that. So birth is just another rite of passage in our life. And women have bodily rites of passage. You know, we have a rite of passage into being, uh, you know, from... And I think you... Have you interviewed Jane Hardwick Collins? No, but I would love to. Right, yeah. She's a re she's really fantastic yeah. But person. I'm very familiar with her, yes. yes. Um, she really talks, this is her thing, is the you know how, what the rites of passage are in terms of the female body with becoming a woman in Menarch, and then childbirth is the mm -hmm. rites of passage that happen in our mothering phase. And not necessarily just birthing children. We birth lots of things. We birth projects, we birth books, we birth, you know, it's the same process of creation. Mm -hmm and bringing something into the world. And then we, you know, have a rite of passage that I'm really enjoying not, um, into, you know, menopause, which is the rite of passage <laughs> into ending all, you know, ending all of that, which has it, yeah. which actually, you know, we don't have a lot of... So in our culture, we don't recognise those transitions, those big major life transitions. We don't recognise them. And then I hear people say, oh, we've lost our rites of passage, but we haven't. So during transitions, kind of throughout the world in, in history, human communities have enacted rituals, words and actions around the person going through that, often creating ceremonies, in order to transmit to that person what it is that's needed. So for example, a girl transitioning to a woman, there'll be a ceremony around that where the community is transmitting to that girl what it means to be a woman in this community. And there might be rituals that reflect that, words, actions, songs, whatever. So they actually construct rituals. Humans have constructed these ceremonies around rites of passage to welcome people in the community into their new phase of life and to kind of give them an idea about what it is that's expected of them now that they've entered that phase of life or now that they're entering it. So in terms of childbirth, the same thing's happening. So this is a rite of passage and throughout that rite of passage, women are receiving messages about what it is to be a woman and a mother in our culture and what it, you know, and they're learning about themselves. You know, rite of passage is usually challenging. There's a bit of kind of unraveling and reweaving together who you are at the end of it. All of that's happening in a childbirth rite of passage. So anyone around that woman, because we don't have ceremonies, we stop. We are reclaiming some. We have blessing ways and you know mother blessings and etc. Happening, where we kind of craft these rituals that centre the woman. But we do have rites of passage in our community, and it's really important we look at them to see what it is we're telling women. So it's digging a bit deeper. So it's it's looking at words and actions that happen so those regular routine cultural things that happen to women during their pregnancy birth and postnatal period 
what messages are we giving them? So what message are we giving when we have this standard um, baby shower? Lots of gifts for the baby. Yeah, lots of jokes mm. about shitty nappies. There's not a lot of coming together and holding the woman and saying, you're really important in this and how can we as a community support you? Because our culture is very much focused on the baby, the product, not the woman who is also going through that rite of passage. Um, We have regular antenatal care, which is centred around surveillance of the woman from the external. So our antenatal care, I mean, I've referred to it as grooming because right from the beginning, you're using medical technology and medical staff to tell you how well your baby is so you go in and the whole focus is on the baby the mother but because it affects the baby and they measure your belly Mm -hmm. they listen to the baby's heart rate they tell you how well you are or not well so it's kind of grooming this reliance on the external expert when it comes to your body and baby and then in labour, of course, women reach out to the external experts to keep them safe because the messaging all the way through pregnancy is safety lies outside of yourself and danger is from within. Rather than flipping that, which it used to be, you know, in ancient history, the danger was considered to arise from outside the woman, spirits and environment. And the actions that were in, carried out during birth were about protecting the woman from those spirits and environment and now we've flipped it and we do all these things to protect the woman from her own body. That's where the danger is and protect the baby from the danger of the mother's body. So these are the messages we're giving women. And then we're surprised that once they have the baby, they're reaching out, not knowing how to care for their baby because they're not connected in with their instincts. They haven't been told that they are the expert and how to listen to themselves and connect with their babies and listen to their baby. They're reading books or they're talking to the experts about what it is they should be doing. So that was a massive long ramble, but really yeah, our rites of passage are the words and actions no, great. that reinforce the cultural messages that we're giving women during that journey. Yeah, and I mean, you provoked a few thoughts in my head as you talked about that, because talking about instincts and intuition and allowing a woman to tune into that whereas I I I remember saying to my mother oh every fiber of my being is telling me to do this but then you know you read a book or a friend or your mum someone else tells you like oh no you're supposed to do this and looking back I was completely right (laughs) my instincts were right on and you know I learned the hard way but Uh, that's so true and particularly in birth because we look to those who are in the white lab coats as the authority you tell me how to do this you tell me what to do and what's going on and you know and our practice revolves around that idea as well so uh, I really love that you have created this I wanted to ask you about the things that can disturb physiology so we talk about interventions and we'll go into that. But then I also have this other thought in my head about does complications in pregnancy disturb physiology? Is well, that something else? Well, complications are a pathology and a complication. So it's not physiology. So this is when we need medicine. Okay. Well, this is when medicine's great. Is, yes. you know, it, 
it's to some extent we're really lucky because we've got the best of both worlds. You know, in Australia, this is a really affluent country. Mm. We can eat well. We can, you know, most of us have access to the resources we need, and we have medicine if we need it. Um, but at the moment, what we're doing is we're using medicine for everybody just in case all the time. So, yeah. you know, so complicated pregnancies are one, you know, really good, you know, medicine has saved lots of women. You know, back in the back in the olden days when we had wise women, there was only so much you could do with preeclampsia, for example. Women would die. Babies would die. And mm. um, infection yeah. didn't have antibiotics. Women died. It was fairly common to die of a uterine infection after birth. So medicine has its mm. place for complications. So physiology doesn't encompass complications and pathology, but because we don't see physiology we think variations are complications. And there's, I think this okay. is one of the key problems at the moment is the lack of understanding of physiology means that anything that deviates from the, you know, what is thought to be physiology, which is not, is considered, considered a complication, which is distinct from a variation. So complications are things like preeclampsia, you know, hemorrhage, you know, ill health, pathology. These are complications. Variations are healthy, well, normal functioning of a body that's just not absolutely aligned with everybody else's body because you know, we're all individuals. So a variation is a baby that's back to back with mum. Normal, healthy variation. Um, you know, there's, there's endless variations. Going past your, you know, prescribed due date, variation, very common variation. Most women will do that. So we've got all these variations that are not a complication, but are treated as a complication. We, and then, you know, we intervene and then we cause a complication and then say, see, so for example, with a baby who's back to back with the mother, there will be a different labour pattern for that mother and baby. So if we look at what's known about labour patterns, it, you know, Friedman's curve was created in the 1940s, 50s, and then picked up in the 70s, and then is still in hospital settings. And that's still used to assess the progress of labour. More than half of first-time women having their first babies will not meet that graph because it's not evidence-based. And we've got lots of research saying that is not how women labour. So we're trying to fit women through these time frames because they're varying from these time frames because they're normal having physiological births so we intervene to make them fit the time frames instead of getting rid of the time frames so we speed up their labor with medication we pull their babies out because they're not meeting the time frames that are not evidence-based so if a woman's baby is back to back with her then her labour pattern will be really different. It needs to be for the physiology to work and to help that baby to rotate. She will absolutely, you know, not meet the time frames in the hospital. So that will be then seen as, oh, you're, you're having a complicated birth because your baby's in the, and I'm doing quote marks here, wrong position. So we will intervene to fix the problem. And then the interventions they use to fix the problem cause problems so, for example, putting up syntocin on to speed the labour up makes the baby stress. We then end up with a caesarean section and the woman's told, you had a caesarean section because your naughty baby was facing the wrong way. So the woman takes home the message that my body and baby don't work properly, they were in the wrong position and I had to have a caesarean. Instead of saying to the woman, 
you know, you had surgery because our systems don't even fit around a woman who has a baby who's, you know, facing the, you know, I'm doing quotes again, the usual way, and that we can't adapt the system for the physiology of an OP labour. So instead, we've intervened and caused a problem. They don't tell the woman that, you know. So that's a classic variation. Yeah, that can be confusing because then in this day and age, how do we tell the difference between a variation and a complication? It's hard. Well, first of all, is for care providers need to understand physiology. Yes. And they need to understand the physiology of variation. So what is different when a baby's facing that way? How does it work differently? How can we support that? Mm. Which they don't know. In terms of, you know, women and, and parents who are in the system, I think it's asking, is my baby currently in danger? Because the answer will probably be no. It's just that they think this variation will end up with it happening. So they're doing it just in case. Yeah. So I think really saying to, to the care providers, is there a complication happening right now? Because there very rarely is. Mm. It's well, no, but we think there might be if we don't do this thing because you're not fitting the pattern that we expect. Yeah, I didn't know that I could decline certain intervention. I didn't know that I could decline things in pregnancy and childbirth. Um, particularly when I guess their fear is projected onto you. So, oh, if we don't do something, this will happen. We have to do this now. Hmm. Um, it can be really hard as just a single woman. You're no professional, you know, and we live in a world where we hand our intuition <laughs> over to the professionals to tell us how to think and feel. Um, so it can be really difficult to stand up and say, no, I'm okay, I don't want that, without, I guess, being coerced into doing it. Well, I would say it's, it's all virtually impossible. So I'm not one of these people who says women yeah. just need to get educated and go in and stand up for themselves. I think that's actually really yeah. victim blamey and missing the point. The people who are working yeah. in that system, it's actually their responsibility to make sure that the women they're caring for know their rights are supported to make decisions and are not judged and are you know treated however they want whether that's to have intervention or not so i think we need to stop taking the um you know stop taking the focus on women having to just get educated and just you know stand up because we know that's impossible particularly in labor and birth for most women that is impossible Mm. and when you add in the physiology of birth which involves that you know, shutting down of the neocortex, the thinking part of the brain, and that limbic system, the instinctive part of the brain, really opening up and taking over, you can't rationally think or argue or stand up for your rights because you're actually busy being a mammal and birthing your baby and not engaging in languagey things. And it's just not fair mm-hmm. to ask women to do that. And if you're asking women to do that, you're actually interfering with physiology. Women need to be just in that Mm. space, birthing, not thinking about, you know, the evidence base for this, that or the other, or whether or not this person genuinely, you know, this intervention is genuine and going to help or not. That's really not, that's not the place to do it. Mm. Well, I guess the other side of that is um, women who don't want to be in a hospital environment having to come out of themselves and say no I don't want that no I don't want that listen to me listen to me and sort of advocate for themselves 
and then opting for home births and free births um i chatted to somebody who had a home birth and free birth on the podcast not long ago um i think these women are fascinating because i think a lot of my fear around pain and birth is what led me to a hospital um so i I find it particularly interesting the women that opt out and go for a home birth and free birth and that seems to be another answer for those that um don't want the coercion or intervention they opt for the home birth and free birth is this a better option for some women yes i mean and that's it there isn't a this is the correct way to do birth you know for some women the correct way for them to do birth will have an elective cesarean section with a private obstetrician and for other people the right way for them to do their birth is to free birth with nobody there so you know your birth experience Mm. is your rite of passage and you you decide what's right for you Um, in terms of physiology Mm. i would say that free birth is where physiology happens and it's not witnessed but you know free birth these women so women who free birth have you know hopefully they haven't chosen it because of an experience that they've had which unfortunately some have in the system but um I've just I've had an honest student who's just finished her honest and she, that's exa- what she looked at. She actually interviewed women who had had free birth without any medical support or doulas because you know doulas are also an attend. Anyone mm-hmm. attending a birth is an intervention. If they're attending that birth, mm-hmm. you know, it, my presence at a birth is an intervention, and you have to really be aware of that as the person attending the birth. So these were a group of women who didn't engage anybody who birthed with their family, maybe present or just them. And we weren't getting into the politics of it because there's research that looks at that. What um, what Ellie wanted to do, who's the student who did it, was really find out what the experience of birth was like for those women. And it was fascinating because there was parallels, absolutely, with physiological birth, which is what I've looked at in my research. But most of the women in my research have had home births with a midwife there or have had a birth in a hospital that's a physiological birth. These women were having parallel experiences, but also very different. So there's there's something different happening, um, in, particularly around that transitional phase, you know, where, where that adrenaline kicks in towards the end of, of liminality to bring the woman to activate her neocortex and bring her back out. These women were experiencing transition different, differently. And I will leave... Ellie, Ellie needs to write this article and get it out there. <laughs> so I will leave her to... to write the findings up but in answer to your question I think you know physiology is easier much easier during a free birth when there is no interventions in there and you are absolutely having to connect in to your instinct and really connect with your baby to know about your well-being that's safety and I think this is what we forget is instinct Mm -hmm. is safety women who are birthing physiologically we'll be the first to know if there's something going wrong. You know, even at home birth, I've cared for women where from the outside it all looks mm. absolutely fine. And the woman is the one who says, no, this, there's something not right. And she's right. Because when you are deeply mm. connected into that instinct, that's what physiological birth is about. You know, for all mammals, it's about you know, protecting the mother and the baby during that you know, massive transition, which is a huge physical time where you're very vulnerable you know as a, as a mammal you're vulnerable during birth so we have these mechanisms just like any other mammal that if we are in that early phase of 
of birth, which I call separation, kind of separating from the external world and finding a safe place to nest and birth. If we're in that phase and we get fearful or we feel unsafe, we'll actually just stop the contractions. The con- you, we'll stop laboring. Whereas if that happens later on in the birth, then it's not going to stop the birth, but it can slow things down a bit. Um, and we have that boost of adrenaline at the end of the birth to clear our neocortex because we've gone into this kind of real altered state during liminality. And the reason we're in that altered state is so that we are totally connected to our instincts and baby. That's safety. That is, you know, that's risk management is instinctive connection of mother and baby. Everything else is just, you know, happening around the outside and not necessarily helpful, particularly not in physiological birth. And then we have that boost of adrenaline at the end to bring you out of that so that you can think, so that you can actually manage your baby when the baby's born and protect the baby from predators immediately after birth. So physiological birth is set up to protect mother and baby. It is risk management. And we kind of forget that. We just think like, oh, you know, physiological birth is just like a nice thing where the body's working but for me as a midwife attending birth for example that is my risk management is ensuring that I facilitate an environment for physiology that's number one then yes if pathology happens or there's any concerns then we manage those with interventions or we transfer to hospital but really most of the time all you need to do is hold that kind of space so that the woman can do the risk management herself which is that physiological birth it's not the woman's responsibility sort of as you were saying you're trying to bring this and put this on the birth workers the midwives the professionals who work in this space they need to understand what true physiological birth is and then when to intervene yeah we need to go back to the yeah we need to go to back to the olden days when the midwife was you know, I'm going to do expert in physiology in that, you know, the midwife would have seen it numerous times. So if we go back to the Mm. kind of European, and I write about this in my book, The Era of the Gossips and the Midwife, if we look at how birth happened then, Mm -hmm. so the woman's emotional and physical support during birth was her her female friends and relatives, the collective culture of women. So, and they were referred to as gossips, godsips, because they would witness the birth for God, but they, co- they collected around the woman, did a laundry, looked after her kids. It was really this kind of coming together of women around birth. So they did all of the things that, you know, the rubbing the back and all of that stuff. And the midwife's role was to, and again, I'm using quotes, oversee is the term that's used in Adrian Wilson's book where he just really analyzes what he calls a ceremony of birth. So the midwife's job was to be there to basically make sure that everybody was facilitating physiology because the midwife would have really understood physiology and then intervene if things deviated. So if things became pathological or complicated, the midwife would have a bag of tricks that she would then inter- intervene with. Um, and midwives actually in that era were probably quite interventionist compared to what we kind of think of now. We do have quite romantic ideas about midwives and midwives have always been interventionists we've always fiddled about you know we've always pulled babies out and cut their cords and done things that's part of our heritage and we need to now at this point go is that going to be part of our future or are we going to maybe re and I often talk about midwives having a bit of an identity crisis in what is it who are we now you know who are we in comparison to doulas and birth workers and and what's our role and how can we do that 
So I think really the role of the midwife is what I'd like to see is just reclaiming that real expertise in understanding physiology and all of its variations. And also though, retaining that ability to know when things are not normal and how to manage that. That's potty. otherwise what's the point in you being at a birth, you know, for a woman? The whole point of me being at a home birth is not to sit about, you know, drinking tea, which is actually what I mostly do. It's it's what I am capable of. <laughs> it's what I am capable of doing. So it's not what I do, it's what I'm capable of yes. doing. Yeah, that's hope so hopefully by the end of the birth and I often do get this comment, particularly from partners, is, well, what did, we pay, what did we pay you for? Well, you paid me for my brain and my skills that you didn't see, thank goodness. You know, you, you paid me for things I didn't do. And, and that really should be the role of the care provider, but we're not socialised like that. We're socialised right from the very beginning, yeah. um, as student midwives, that it's all about doing. So being a good midwife is being able to do things well. So the whole focus of assessments is on can you do a palpation, can you do a vaginal examination in a clinical area, you know, the good midwives, the good students are the students who know how to do all the things, not necessarily the students who know how to advocate for women or how to facilitate physiology, that go, that pretty much is ignored. So we're reinforcing this culture for care providers. So we end up with care providers who really do believe that the doing is the job and that if they don't do the things then it's dangerous for the woman. So the intention is not, you know, care providers aren't going out there thinking, oh, ha-ha, I'm going to meddle in a birth and mess it up. They genuinely believe that if I don't do these things, then something terrible will happen and I'll be responsible. So they're enacting these yes. these rituals, if you like, of mm-hmm. directing, pushing, fiddling about with perineums, and pulling babies out because... They're taught that if they don't do that, it's not good practice and it's dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's so tangled, isn't it? And I think a lot of your work is to untangle it, <laughs> essentially. That's what you're doing um, because it is so. it can be so complex. And um, talking about socialize, socialization and birth, so you talk about it from the midwife's perspective just with what you were saying there and I was thinking about the the birthing woman and I remember finally I say finally getting to hospital after 12 hours of laboring at home I get to hospital and I spend about five hours in the shower with my husband who was helping me through those five hours and I remember being angry that my midwife was nowhere to be seen because I'm thinking, what are you doing? Like, you've got to help me. Like, uh, like, isn't that what your job? Like, you have to help me. And I remember thinking those things in the shower. Um, thankfully, she was doing what she was supposed to be doing, <laughs> leaving me to birth. Um, but I think it's really important to consider the way that we're socialized with birth because I really thought that a midwife helps me birth my baby. Uh, or for some people, an obstetrician helps you birth your baby or, you know, whoever. Um, so I, I think it's really fascinating to unpack how we're socialized with birth, whether you're the birth worker or the birthing woman, and understand physiological birth. It can be really powerful, I think. Yeah, and, a lot, um, and that's one of the arguments that I, I get a lot from midwives is, oh, well, women want, want us to do those things and, you know, that they'll complain if we don't do those things because they're expecting those things. And that's 
Yeah, that's absolutely true, which is why when you're working in a fragmented system, when you don't know the woman, because it's easy if you know her, because you can have all these conversations beforehand and say, look, this is how I practice and this is why I do it, so that they know you're not going to be telling them what to do or doing much. But in a hospital setting, Mm -hmm. it's about when you meet that woman, you're between contractions because she might be in full on labour, just saying to her, you know, you're doing amazing Lots of people, when I said that I was going to be interviewing you, wanted to talk about interventions, a.k.a. induction. And I know you always say you can't escape this (laughs) since the first time you wrote about it. Um, So I'm just going to honor those people that wanted to ask some questions. Why does induction matter? I guess that is a question to help you sum up your book in a paragraph or so. And when are inductions actually necessary? Because I know there are common misconceptions about when an induction is necessary. So I'll let you take the lead on that. All right. Well, the book's called Why Induction Matters because it's Pinter and Martin are the publishers and they have a whole range of books that are why something matters. So, yes, yeah, that's why. Uh, But it matters because if we're looking at the stats and every year they get higher and higher and higher, we've got, you know, 45% of of women having having their first babies who are having an induction. So induction is probably more normal than non-induction because mm-hmm. we could take out the cesarean section births out of that. Um, so induction is an absolute norm. It's normal birth in Australia to be induced or at the very least have your labour speeded up even if you don't get induced. So that's why it matters because if we're going to be doing that to the majority of women, then we need to know what it's, how it's altering physiology and what the impact of that is, which we don't. We're getting, we're starting to, um, but it's, you know, and it's not physiological birth. And this is another thing that's really important um, that I've tried to make the point in, in the course that I'm creating because it, it gets confused and it's not just women which you would expect to get confused it's actual you know care providers so midwives and obstetricians confuse physiology with non-physiology so an induced birth is not a physiological birth it it works differently and if you apply what you know about physiology into induction then you need to adapt your practice you need to change what you do so it gets dangerous when you start treating a woman who's having an induction as if she's having a physiological birth and, you know, like I was saying, do nothing and drink tea. That's now dangerous because this woman is actually having a medical birth that puts her baby and her in danger. So you need to do all the other interventions to make sure they're both safe. You have to monitor that because you've intervened. So I think that's important to make that distinction. And in terms of when, when is induction necessary... Necessary is an interesting word, isn't it? I guess I would say it's necessary when the woman chooses to have it. Now, if we're talking about medically necessary, then a complication... So, for example, preeclampsia, severe Mm preeclampsia, the only cure, if you like, for that is to get the placenta out because it's actually the placenta that's causing the problem. The only way to get the placenta out is to get the baby out. An induction of labour mm-hmm. is, you know, a good way of doing that in that situation. So, you know, that's a, a necess- medically necessary um, induction. 
there are other reasons, but they're few and far between because, you know, even things like growth restricted babies, so babies who are considered to be not thriving in the uterus. Now, that's distinct from small babies because you can't actually measure babies with ultrasound. But if you look at the umbilical flow, so you do an ultrasound of the cord and look at the umbilical arteries and how what the flow is, and that baby's not getting well perfused and the baby's not growing and the baby's not well because the placenta's not functioning, then why would you then do an induction of labour for that baby? Because induction you know, causes less blood flow through the placenta. So you're going to stress that baby out. So, you know, the cesarean section would be a better option if you had a very, you know, a baby that was really compromised because their placenta wasn't functioning. You wouldn't add extra stress onto that placenta. You would, you know, so there's, so there isn't, so in terms of necessary, it really is about that woman making the decision with all of the information of the benefits and risks in her particular scenario for induction and that's why in the book I kind of made sure I had an entire chapter about decision making and how to work through the information that's coming in to make decisions about what you want and I also included at the end of that book a whole chapter on birth planning for an induction because it's different it's a different experience there are different options and there are absolutely options within induction there are absolutely ways to make induction an amazing experience and to be as you know close to physiology and to pick up that physiology once the baby's born to make sure that the breastfeeding's established, all of those things can be done with an induction. But it's about, you know, if you're having an induction, you've got that time to plan, having you because you know it's gonna happen. And to really be clear about what it is you do want and don't want in that process. So there's a whole chapter on on that. Well, something that often comes up with induction um, is this number of weeks in a pregnancy. Um, and you talk about this in your book as well, that we've sort of been counting pregnancies wrong all these years. I mean, if we look at, at the, at the stats and research, most babies are born if we, if, if allowed at roughly 41 weeks, that's sort of the average length of a pregnancy. Whereas women are told they can't go over a certain amount of weeks um, in a pregnancy and so then an induction is booked because of the way that the organizations assess risk so you know yeah what you're working with is a risk assessment that's a generalized risk assessment focusing on really teeny tiny chances of things happening but those teeny tiny chances of things happening if it happens it's catastrophic that, and it's numbers and it's all based on numbers of women having intervent intervention so the stats i don't think you're going to change that in fact what you're seeing is you're adding more and more reasons for induction so now going past your guest date is not the main reason to be induced in australia it's gestational diabetes so we're changing the the parameters so that more and more people more and more women come under that umbrella of induction is recommended because we're adding more and more things to the Mm. the reasons for induction and it all just it absolutely reflects way back where you know it reflects her story that women's bodies are dangerous and that babies need to be saved from women's bodies because that's where the danger happens. Not that the danger is the syntocinon, even though that's the biggest risk factor for fetal distress is syntocinon, full stop. That's not factored in. So it's the idea that women's bodies are the danger, that they're dangerous to their babies and that medical intervention can save babies and that that medical intervention can save babies and 
you know, we're looking at teeny, teeny, tiny percentages and not looking at what else the side effects of those interventions are. So if you take a massive population of women and you induce them before they get to 42 weeks, then you will reduce the stillbirth rate from 0. Point, I can't remember it off the top of my head, 0. 0.03 to 0. 0.3 to 0.03. So we're talking about less than 1%. Nobody's counting the impact of the induction on the mother and baby, short term or long term, that's you know not mm-hmm. as catastrophic as the loss of a baby, but is much more likely. So hemorrhage is much more likely. You know, pain is much, much, much more likely, which means you're more likely to have an epidural. Caesarean section is much, much, much more likely if it's your first baby. And then for the subsequent baby, the risk of stillbirth because you have a uterine scar is higher than the risk of stillbirth for you going post-dates with this baby. But that's not factored in. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Like, I remember hearing all of this sort of thing for the first time and I sort of experienced some disbelief, I would say, because originally, well, what do you mean? Like, what, every practitioner is 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 doing harm? You know, like, this is kind of the thought process. Obviously, that's not the case all, all the time, but... It can be hard to accept, I think, the first time you hear these things because it is so normalised. Yeah, it's it's so normalised. And what you've got to remember is that from the practitioner perspective, they're really good at doing inductions and they're really good at doing cesareans because mm. they do lots of them. So you probably are really safe having your induction because they'll intervene once the baby gets distressed. You know, So we're really good at that and we're not good at supporting physiology. So from the care provider's perspective, their intention is not harm. Their intention is, look, these are the stats and these are the recommendations. And they feel responsible. Again, that comes down to that kind of expert thing, the wearing the cape, that being responsible for the woman. And they feel that sense of responsibility. And if I don't do this thing, I'll get sued if anything bad happens. So I can see it from the care provider's perspective because what needs to happen which is really difficult, is for the responsibility to actually be pushed back onto the woman. Of these are the options, you need to make your decision and I will support you either way and release that responsibility. And care providers find it really hard because it's drummed into us that it is our responsibility. When legally, it's actually not. Our responsibility legally is to make sure that you have adequate information to make your decision, and that's individualised information. So we need to be sharing all of the risks of both options, if it's induction versus not induction, um, we need to be sharing all of the risks in order for to meet the legal requirement of adequate inter- information. Then you need to be making a decision, and then we need to support that decision regardless of whether we agree with it, whether it fits, you know, the recommendations. That's actually what our legal requirements are. But I think we, as care providers, either forget that, or it's not the norm. And often when I when I look at the life, we used to do workshops with midwives and we'd actually have a whole session on the law. Experienced midwives would have had, would, were surprised to find out that that was the law. That actually they were breaching the law every time they didn't give women full information in order to get consent to do things. And it's really confronting for a care provider to go, oh my God, all these years I've done it. You know, I've been coercing women. I've been assaulting and battering women. Yeah. According to law, because I have not been 
meeting the legal criteria required of me. It's just commonplace in the health services. So because care providers or student midwives don't see it, they don't think there's anything wrong with what they're seeing. And they're expected to do the same. I even had in one workshop, somebody were talking about um, you know, breaking women's waters and what information you need to give to a woman in order to do that, to make sure you get consent. And all of those midwives in that room could tell me the risks of breaking women's waters. We you know, wrote them down, all of them. And I didn't have to tell them. This is a risk, this is you know, all the risks. Okay, so you tell the woman that. No. And one of them just said, hold on, she went, you, yeah. can't, you can't tell the woman that because if you told her that, she'd say no. Yes. I said, and then I'd get into trouble from the obstetrician. So this is, you know, I said, okay, so you're prepared yeah. to break the law by doing that thing to the woman without consent because you're more frightened of an obstetrician not liking you or, you know, making your life difficult at work than you are breaking the law for this woman. And that's what it comes down to. And yes, that is the case because as midwives were working in a kind of our own little tribes in a hospital setting where your colleagues are, your allegiance is with your colleagues, not with this woman who comes in who you're only going to see once. You'll never see her again. You'll see her for your shift. See you later. Yeah. You don't see the postnatal yeah. you know, outcomes. So, so your allegiance is with making sure that people like you in the clinical area and that you're not bullied. And there's a lot of bullying of midwives who don't toe the line. That's the decision. The decision you have to kind of make is: Am I going to be liked by my colleagues and part of this group, or am I going to be the dangerous outsider, but meet the needs of the women that are cared for? It's not. It's horrendous. Mm. Even for an experienced midwife who, you know, like me, is kind of happy to not happy, prepared to take on the um, to take on the fight. I shouldn't have to do that, you know. And for a new grad or a midwife who's in a setting where. She doesn't feel like she's got any support and nobody else is going, yep, I've got you back. That's, you're not going to do that, you know. It's, it's unsafe for the, yeah, for the midwife. Do you have any advice for midwives <laughs> who maybe are battling this right now? <laughs> oh, I think, you know, what we did, need to do as midwives is we need to get back to our reclaim midwifery. So reclaim our understanding mm-hmm. of physiology, however you do that. Um, ideally by witnessing it um, which can be difficult you know you might have to go and attend a home birth you might have to watch some movies a free birth just you know do some research do some education learn what the default is physiology Um, if you're working in a system then find those you know midwives are there are pockets of us you know I know because the midwives who follow me get it you know I wrote a post Mm -hmm. recently on Instagram about getting it there are midwives everywhere who get it, who are doing amazing things with women one-on-one, you know, protecting the women from what's going on and making sure that they are facilitating physiology, making sure that they're advocating for women. They're doing it. And they're often doing it in isolation, thinking they're the only ones who are doing it. So it's about connecting up mm. these midwives into a collective with women because we have to work with women. We need women on board and by our side. Um, and just doing it, you know, what's the worst that can happen if you, if you're on a shift and you know that you've got your under, you know, you've got your, what's it called it, the uh, underground movement, and you've got, you know, three mates who are in that hospital who get it, right? And you're on a shift and you get into trouble for advocating and somebody thinks you're dangerous and it doesn't like you. Well, ring up your mate and say, look, this thing happened and so-and-so thinks I'm dangerous. And we need to be 
supporting each other and having each other's backs you know the number of times that Mm. in a hospital setting in particular I've and this needs to not be happening in the room with women women don't this is not women's fight and it needs to not be in the birth rooms because that disrupts physiology so as a care provider Mm. my physiology if I'm anxious and nervous and stressing out that's going to impact the woman I'm caring for so it needs to not be happening like that it needs to happen outside of the birth room in a respectful way you know you don't have to be you know all up in people's faces and swearing at them it can be done with humor and with and and challenge boundaries and one of the key things I found really helpful is taking responsibility so if you are looking after a woman in a hospital setting and you go out and tell an obstetrician something you have now activated that obstetrician and obstetricians are fantastic at medical interventions because that's what they're trained to do do not invite an obstetrician into the birth room if you don't want them to do their job you see a lot of that midwives do that and part of it is look i want to share the responsibility you come in and you look at this thing and you you review it because now the responsibility is yours i always envisage responsibility as a handbag i don't know why and it gets passed around and we kind of take it off the woman and then the midwife's holding it and the midwife goes oh i don't like this so she goes and finds the obstetrician and hands the hands the bag over to the obstetrician and the obstetrician goes oh right i'm holding this responsibility i'm going to do all the things that i believe are safe for this woman and baby because i'm responsible and then you've started that cascade so i think it's as a midwife owning your own practice don't ask obstetricians to do things if you don't want them to and if you do have to go out and you know it's part of the your policy in your hospital or whatever that you have to give updates you do it in a way that makes it very clear you're taking responsibility so you know you say i'm looking after so-and-so she doesn't want a vaginal examination she's doing really well the baby's well she's well she's making all the right noises and sounds and behaviors i'm convinced that she's progressing um she doesn't want to have a medical review so please don't come in the room i promise i'll come out and tell you if there's any concerns and i will come out and let you know an update in the next hour so now it's taken that off you know you're saying i'm doing this you keep out most obstetricians will love that Mm. because you you get on with it you're not you know pulling them in and asking them to do things they don't need to do so i think midwives need to Mm. own their craft a little bit more and support Mm. each other to do that and have each other's backs you know so many times i see a midwife who's done something and then had someone having a go and you go right hang on a minute those other three midwives sitting listening to this agree with the midwife why aren't they saying hang on a minute well i think i would have done that as well and you know backing her up mm. you need to have each solidarity very much needed <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of fear around that as well and that can be really hard to break through well that's a woman thing as well and, yes and when we talk about physiology and my um, friend and honest student Ellie we have conversations about this all the time she's very into that polyvagal thing it goes kind of above my head a lot of it so I'm not going to pretend I know anything about it however (laughs) elements of it have been really helpful in me understanding what happens in you know groups of women and in maternity services maternity services are primarily what's women birthing and it's primarily women work you do get the odd male midwife they're few and far between so mm-hmm. this is a, a collective culture of women but happening under the umbrella of kind of medicine and until recently obstetricians have been men a lot of them, 80% of new 
graduating obstetricians are women now, so we can't use that excuse anymore. So we've got this thing happening, and as women were socialised to be nice, we also have lots of oestrogen, yes. which is the people-pleasing hormone, so we're kind of set up to be nice and accommodating and nurturing and lovely. Some of us it doesn't work for, very well for, um, but that's what we're set up to do. And then when we're under threat, our nervous systems... So, you know, under threat, you will either run away, you know, flight, you'll fight, you'll rear up and do a fight. But there's also other pathways that your nervous system uses when you're under threat. And, you know, understanding the fit in and fawn or the kind of freeze and fawn just absolutely makes sense to me. So, you know, and women are primed for that. We're not primed to fight. We haven't got the testosterone kick that men have. So, you know, that we don't get the dopamine reward for the fight that testosterone gives you. Um, I'll fight. That's my default. But I don't, I don't like it. I don't get the reward for it, unfortunately. <clears throat> yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, that, that's my, my go-to is to rear up, which is not helpful at all. Um, but a lot of women will Can go run. into that <laughs> shutdown phase, which you see a lot in you know, midwives just shutting down and getting through the day and just doing the thing, even though they feel terrible about what they're doing, they just do it because they need to survive. Mm. Or fawning, and you see so much of that fawning happening, the fitting in and fawning, that kind of you know people pleasing thing, and they're pleasing, you know the the hospital culture to feel safe. And these are this is because they're under threat, yeah. and we need to you know remember there's a lot of bagging of midwives doing you know. And they do need to take responsibility for it and sort themselves out. But at the same time, you know, this is a protection mechanism that midwives are using because they're under threat. It's a really, it can be a really stressful and threatening environment to be in, working in a setting where what you know is the right thing to do to support this woman is perceived as the wrong thing to do and that you're being dangerous and that you're not towing the line. It's not, it's not nice. So you see a lot of midwives. Mm-hmm. And in my um, research, I... I looked at what midwives were doing and, you know, looked, there was different coping mechanisms that I kind of categorised because I quite liked them. So that one is conformity, um, which a lot of midwives do. They just actually genuinely now believe that if this woman yeah. doesn't get induced, everyone's going to die because that's easier to believe that. So they completely conform. They just coerce women. They do. There's the conformers. The conformers tend to end up, you know, rising up the ladder of the of the system. <clears throat> then you've got the... Um, yeah. You've got now. Let me remember this. You've got so you've got conformity. You've got um, covert autonomy. So yes, yeah. So actually, autonomy is so you've got conformity and you've got autonomy. So autonomy is where you absolutely just do everything that's aligned with your beliefs. You're not going to last very long in a hospital system. I can tell you, right? When I interviewed midwives, there was only one who had who had practiced fully autonomously in a hospital setting and then she'd gone out to do home birth because she got bullied out of the system because you can't so full okay. autonomy would just not even be offering the vaginal examination because it's not warranted so you just don't even offer it yeah. um, so if we use vaginal examination as an example of these various so the conforming midwife would do four hour vagin- vaginal examinations and she'd just say to the woman I'm going to do a vaginal examination now no risks or benefits the autonomous midwife wouldn't even offer it because it's not evidence based and it's an intervention. Now, in the middle of that, you've got superficial conformity. So this is where students often are. So they know that doing the vaginal examination every four hours is not evidence-based, it's not woman-centered, and it's not helpful. 
but they'll do it because to not do it is dangerous for them, particularly as student midwives. So they're superficially conforming. So from the outside, it looks like they're doing all the right things according to you know, the hospital setting. Inside, they're you know, coming to uni and going, oh my God, blah, 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 blah. I had to do this thing and it's not evidence-based. And so that's where students often sit and new grads. And then there's um, now covert autonomy, which is, I think, where most midwives practice. And of course, this isn't about, it'll change depending on the shift and who's on the shift as to where you are on this spectrum and what approach you're using. So superficial conformity, I would say, is the most common thing that midwives do, which is looking like kind of looking a little bit like um, it's, it's manipulating things to fit. So you're working autonomously, but you're having to fit the system around that. So for example, if talking about the vaginal examinations, then this would be superficial. This would be um, COVID autonomy. It would be saying to the woman, hey, look, in this hospital, there's a recommendation that we offer you a vaginal examination every four hours. Um, That's not evidence-based and there are risks associated with doing that, which is blah, blah, blah. Um, And you are doing amazing. You know, I can see that you're making progress because of blah, blah, blah. Um, Would you like me to do a vaginal examination or not? Because I don't mind either way. That's... So that's being autonomous because you're practicing according truly to yourself, but you're kind of yes. doing it covertly in that it's the woman who then says, no, I don't want a vaginal examination. And you document that and then you go out of the room and say, we're not doing one because she doesn't want one. Full stop. Mm. So midwives are finding ways around it. And there's a lot of, um, yeah. a lot of covert autonomous midwives going on. That's what they're doing. Great. I love that. <laughs> We, get, we need more of that. <laughs> well, it would be even better if they were just able to be autonomous because that's quite, you know, it's a bit of Yes, a, of course. It's a bit, you know, it's work trying to fit the uh, system around the woman. Yes. And how exhausting for the midwife. Mm-hmm. It'd be so exhausting every day. Yep. Trying to make sure you fit both boxes. <laughs> yep. Speaking of vaginal examination, so the first time I read your blogs, your research, your books, I thought... A lot of the information was a bit confronting for me as somebody who is not a midwife, as somebody who has not studied anything like this before, but I have birthed in the system. And so vaginal examinations as an intervention, hold on, wait a minute, what? Um, A stretch and sweep that was offered to me at 41 plus, no, 41 weeks is an intervention. I'm sorry, what? Um, You know, these sorts of things I thought that again are so normalized in birth and birth practice I struggled to comprehend why I had a private midwife in a birth center as well why my midwife would offer these things if they weren't evidence-based and I think that you've um, answered that question really really well throughout but as a as a birthing woman particularly the first time you go through this how can you decide particularly if you maybe have a conformist midwife how do you decide that what is policy and what is evidence-based how do you tell the difference and how do you make those decisions that will depend on the individual woman and you know I don't do childbirth education and I don't like to parents and I don't do that for a reason yeah because it's right (laughs) it's really difficult and what I say in my book is, you know, everybody yes. prepares for birth in their own way. They will have, you know, some women will need to know everything in order to trust that it's 
that that's how it can be and to advocate for themselves other women don't want to know anything and we'll just you know go with the flow and it'll turn out yes. fine there isn't a right way to prepare for birth and there isn't a right way you know you shouldn't have to do all your research to know whether or not vaginal examination is evidence-based or not you shouldn't have to do that um it can help but dr reed this is this is what's happening i know i often get emails from women saying can you give me the evidence to support the thing i want to do right and i always say no because actually (laughs) (laughs) just warning anybody who's listening don't email me (laughs) the reason is like as the woman who's having the baby right it's the people who want to do the thing that have to tell you the evidence for the thing they want to do it's not on you to find the evidence to show why it's safe for you to not be induced that's not your that you don't have to do that a simple no thank you is all that you have to do. You don't even have to put the thank you on if you don't want to. You just say no, right? <laughs> Legally, that's all that's required yeah. from you. You have no obligation to prove yourself to a care provider and pull out all the research. And like, that's huge. Like, you can't, you know, some people will because some people like research and they're nerds and they gather it all and they'll do that. It's not fair to expect most women to do that. You know, it's, research is difficult to understand at the best of times. You know, I find it difficult. That's not your job. The care provider who's suggesting that they should do something, it's their obligation to do that. So ask them. So when women say, oh, you know, give me the research to prove it's all right for me to not be induced, I say, well, how about, no. How about you say to the person who's asking to induce you, can you please give me the evidence that supports that? That's their job. And it's their job to not only give you the evidence but to put it in a way that you understand. This is our professional requirements to give people information and to put it in a, a terms that that person understands and to give them, you know, not just say, oh, it's a threefold increase. Say, well, it goes from this to this, you know, be really, quite, it's all there. It's actually, again, the care provider's job, not the woman. And I know that that's not happening, mm. um, but I don't think the answer to that not happening is arming, you know, and that's the word softening, you trying to arm parents with all of this information to support what they instinctively know they want to do or not do and then expecting them to be able to hold that up in a setting that's a medical you know not their territory in a hospital setting with all these experts where they're fearful for the safety of their baby they're going to go along with anything Mm. of course they are and they shouldn't then beat themselves up about that because of course they are that's normal yeah oh this is so refreshing Because as I'm trying to navigate this and really understand, I guess, the right way to do things from the birth perspective, so the person birthing, I think uh, a lot of what's being said is inaccurate and isn't correct and is a lot of responsibility. Um, And that comes from somebody who had two hyperemesis pregnancies. There's absolutely no way I had the capacity (laughs) to try and unpack and understand any of that. Let let alone if you're you're a mum of multiple and you're working and you're like, life just doesn't allow that, I think. Mm. Um, You shouldn't have to do a degree. No. In order to make decisions in pregnancy. It's like ridiculous. Like that's not your job. Your job is to actually just actually disconnect from that thinking neocortex part of your brain connect with your baby build trust in your ability to instinctively know if you need help or not that's you know and that's why you know my Mm. book the whole preparation phase and pregnancy is all about building self-trust however you do that because that's what you need 
because then you have trust in your ability to make decisions yeah. if somebody's suggesting something you will know in your gut whether that's the right thing for you and your baby you don't need all of the numbers and the stats and the if you want them then fine they're there but that's not actually your job and um, we we mm. put a lot on on women instead of just actually letting them just be pregnant and have babies like they always have we, we now expect them to do a degree in order yeah. to have a baby yeah what are your hopes for maternity care in the future i hope that maternity care in the future starts to center women i think if we did that then that's what needs to happen and you know for some women that's hospital birth for some women that's intervention because that's you know another myth i guess is that it's not a rite of passage or it's not proper if it doesn't look a particular way and you see particularly with social media now mm. and everything's kind of this external projection of things and judging from the outside that a lot of women feel that their birth has to be a particular way in order to be valid and you know they have to not have any intervention as you know as you were saying they have to not have this or they have to have this in order to properly do it which is you know bullshit you know interventions have always been around they've just changed from what you know what they are um, and how they're carried out mm. interventions have always been around they will always be wanted by a lot of women and that's all right and sometimes it's a negotiation and that's all right you haven't ruined your birth because you've decided to have an active management of the placenta instead of like that's not ruined your physiological birth is great but you can have aspects of physiology and then not physiology you know you can have the placenta actively managed you've still had a physiological birth of your baby you've still had a valid amazing birth experience it, it doesn't have to be physiology because physiology is amazing you can opt out of physiology or you might have to opt out of physiology because you end up having complications of pathology so i'd really like to stop all of this judging women's birth and therefore judging them um from this external perspective of birth we're, we're getting a little bit um it's becoming like a wedding isn't it it's kind of has to it will be absolutely <laughs> absolutely perfect and managed and yeah go the right way and women feel their birth entirely ruined if everything was fine until the placenta got stuck or something and now it's all ruined it's like well no that's part of your birth story that was your rite of passage was that little challenge with the placenta look what you learned from that you know the there's always to rite of passage however it happens a woman who has an elective cesarean section with an obstetrician no labor at all she has a rite of passage that's her rite of passage and that's why i kind of wrote that final chapter in the book about medical birth because although medical birth is not my area of expertise it's really important to honor medical birth as much as we honor physiological births just as a midwife perspective mm. my focus is physiology because that's midwives supposed to be midwives um, focus and expertise and you know facilitating that but we also need to acknowledge that we need to respect the rite of passage that is medical birth mm. and i think anything that has a rite of passage it does change you and i remember ha having those thoughts after i had um my first baby obviously there was a little bit of trauma there and things as well but I couldn't believe how much of an impact childbirth had on me. And I also thought the same with motherhood. And then I discovered matrescence, as a, you know, and mm. we could view that as a rite of passage. Um, but I love that you talk about childbirth as a rite of passage because 
I really believe through and through that it is something that can transform you and does transform you. Um, whether we're conscious of that or not, <laughs> I think it does. Yep. So I'm conscious of your time, Dr. Reed. <laughs> I really want to say thank you so much for coming on, sharing your wisdom with us and hopefully many, many midwives. Um, and of course, I'm sure midwives know who you are anyway, because you're such a big name in the birth space. So I appreciate all the work that you're doing and advocating for woman-centered birth. And it's so important and you're definitely on the right track. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in in today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Rachel Reed, I really do encourage you to listen to her podcast, The Midwives Cauldron. She kind of talks about the same things we were talking about, but really is able to break them down in each episode. So I really encourage you to do that. You can also find more information about her, her research, her blogs, her books via her website, rachelreed.website or midwifethinking.com. If you loved this episode, we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends. The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.